Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Hey, welcome to church. It's so good to be with you. I'm excited to continue on our final leg of our series, The Way, the Truth, and the Life. And I wanted to remind you of what we're talking about when we say the life. Now, this is the summary from Shane Miller, and this is what he wrote. He says, as we follow the way and as we accept the truth of Jesus, that truth transforms us into the new life. We want to powerfully see how we can live into this newness of life individually and corporately as a church, gaining a deeper understanding of how God has rescued us from paths of death and faithfully led his bride through the century, sustaining us as we continue to find ways to proclaim that Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. Now this last piece of this is going to be what we look at specifically today, the fact that God has faithfully led his bride, the church, through the century, sustaining us as we continue to find the ways to proclaim that Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. Today, I want us as a church to do a little dive into the history of the bride of Christ and see that even though the life of the church has looked different through the ages, in the methods and in the modes that it's used, the truth of Jesus proclaimed has never changed. As Shane mentioned two weeks ago, our own personal spiritual life and habits are important not only for our own good, but for the good of the church corporately as a whole. And with that, it's it's important that we daily ask God to search our hearts. Psalms 139, 23 through 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in them, and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, the scripture is at the heart of this message this morning. It's important that we understand that our personal life as a follower of Christ, and corporately as the bride of Christ, is an inside-out life. Jesus is more concerned with the heart of his people and the heart behind the methods and the modes than he is with the outward appearance or our traditions. And we're going to use the life of Jesus as the example set for how we should live out our lives and see how, we, how he treated traditions and um, those things that surrounded his ministry at the time and what he had to say about living a life of freedom. So as we travel back through the time and celebrate the Western Church's rich history together, I want to remind you that our goal is to point us even further to the things that really matter, to get back to the real reasons of what we do and remind ourselves of the truth, that God has faithfully led his church through the generations, sustaining it, And as his people have continued to find new ways to share the gospel of Jesus, making it abundantly clear that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life worth living for. The life of the church has taken on many different looks and trends that have been used to spread the good news of the gospel. We all understand this now more than ever today. For example, while some of you guys are watching church online from the comfort of your home, others are going to be coming to church to sit in a pew. Who would have thought that we would have this capability today? Recently, we've gone backwards in uh, a day to a day in the life of the church where a drive-in church was a potent method for reaching people with the good news of Christ. We've had services at the Agri Center, and I've even risked life and live to proclaim the good news of Christ on top of the clock tower at the Tulare Outlet Mall. I've never sweated through a shirt so fast in my life. So we can all agree that the life of the church has looked different recently. And I'm sure if you're old enough that you've witnessed firsthand and even taken part in some of the changes in the life of the church. Some of you remember being here at the church the first day that a drum set hit the stage. You see, there's plenty of ways the life of the church has changed over time, from technology to the sanctuary building to the worship music and on down to one of my favorite things, fashion. Now, it's no secret that I may have my own style. In fact, I think it's a beautiful thing that we don't all dress exactly alike here at TCC because God made us all different. I'd say that for our church, what to wear is a non-issue. Anyone could walk into church and feel comfortable no matter what they chose to wear that day. For example, I love that Henry Bosman enjoys wearing boots so sharp that he could puncture your car tire. I love the fact that for many men in our church, Sanook slip-ons are considered their church shoe of choice. 
I love that there are gentlemen who have called TCC home since its beginning that proudly wear a coat and a tie on Sunday. I love that some ladies' ideal dress to worship is comfortable, while others' hearts are overjoyed to wear their best dress in honor of the king whom they come to worship. I believe that our diversity is a good thing. In fact, in this season of online church services, I've heard that there are some people who still got dressed up to watch church in their living rooms, and I think that's so cool. Praise God for that. But it wasn't always this way for this church in America. We've all heard talk about the idea of dressing up for church or talk about the difference between a church shirt and a shirt shirt. But where did this idea of dressing up for church come from? What does the Bible say about it? And how does it apply to the other areas like technology and worship and the church building? And what's at the heart of the matter for us today as followers of Jesus? The idea of dressing up for church started in the late 18th century with the Industrial Revolution and it became widespread in the 19th century. Before this time period, dressing up for social events was something that only the very wealthy did, and the reason was pretty simple. Only the well-to-do could afford nice clothing. Common folks normally had two sets of clothes, work clothes for the fields or getting dirty, and less tattered clothes for going into town. From the medieval times to the 18th century, clothes were a, a clear sign for social class. In fact, in places like England, poor people were actually forbidden from wearing clothing of the well-to-do people. But all these things changed at the invention of the mass textile industry and the development of the urban society. Fine clothes became affordable, the middle class was born, and those in that group could finally emulate the rich crowd that they envied so much. With extra cash in their pockets, they could finally afford to dress up. So, it's interesting to note that in the 19th, 18th and 19th century, some Christian groups actually resisted this cultural trend to dress up. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, wrote against wearing expensive or flashy clothing, and his teachings on clothing have been called a gospel of plainliness. His main message was that Christians ought to dress plainly, neatly, and simply. And Wesley spoke so often on this subject that he's credited for coining the phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness, even though he borrowed it from a rabbi. But, I mean, who's really, who, it doesn't really matter. The Methodists were serious about this topic. Now, there was actually accounts in the early Methodist church where they were so against dressing up that they turned away anyone who wore expensive clothing to their church meetings. The early Baptists also condemned fine clothing, teaching that it separated the rich from the poor. And I think the Methodists had pure motives for what they were trying to do, but a case could be made that by trying to fight the cultural trend of dressing up with impure motives, they were effectively judging the appearance of the person and not the heart. But despite all of this, American Christians began wearing nice clothes whenever they could. The growing middle class in America prospered, homes got bigger, clothes got fancier, and church buildings got bigger and fancier too. This all came to a head in 1843 when Horace Bushnell, an influential congregational minister in, the, in Connecticut, published an essay called The Taste and Fashion. Sounds like a good read, doesn't it? One, in it, Bushnell argued that sophistication and refinement were attributes of God and that Christians should emulate them. And this is where the idea of dressing up for church to honor God was born. Then in 1846, a Virginian Presbyterian named William Henry Foote wrote that a church-going people are a dress-loving people. And this statement expressed the formal dress ritual that mainstream Christians at the time had adopted. And that trend had grown so popular that by the 1850s, even the formal dress-resistant Methodists had been absorbed by it, and they too were wearing their Sunday best to church. In effect, as with just about every other accepted church practice that we find today, dressing up for church is the result of Christians being influenced by their surrounding culture. Now, this isn't a bad thing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, Even though I'm a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. 
When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessing. So Paul says, be all things to all people so that we may share the good news of Christ. And the church can most certainly take, redeem, and use elements from culture to reach people with the gospel of Christ. And it has done so effectively from generation to generation and will continue to do so. Another example would be how the church adopted the use of technology. The first movie projector was introduced in America in 1895, and this was all the rave. And it wasn't long until the movie magic made its way inside the American home. The first TV was produced in America in 1927, and by 1939, RCA produced TVs with a whopping 5 by 12 inch screen. It wasn't until 1947 that full-scale commercial broadcasting had begun. And by 1949, Americans who lived within range of a television station could watch the Texaco Star Theater starring Milton Berle and children's programs like Howdy Doody. In 1960, the nation saw just how important screens had become with the election of a young and vital president by the name of John F. Kennedy. You see, TVs not only had an impact on the life of American homes, but it also made an effect on politics. The first television debate between Kennedy and Vice President Richard Nixon was considered to be won by Nixon if you listen to the radio. But those who watched on television were able to contrast Nixon's poor posture and poorly shaven face with Kennedy's poise and grace. And they came to the conclusion that Kennedy had won the debate. Then in the 60s, the overhead projector was created. This signaled a shift in many churches with projectors being used to broadcast words on a sheet or a wall during worship. Now, not only were churches playing hymns, but praise music was being used on a Sunday and learning, and learning a new song was much easier thanks due in large part to this technology. From there, each generation has taken technology created for the culture and found creative ways to use it in the life of the church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Billy Graham filmed and televised his powerful sermons and used the technology, and God blessed his ministry greatly as revivals began across our country. In that same way today, we see churches making an impact globally by filming messages, creating short films, and broadcasting the testimonies of believers both near and far. The church has continued to be like Paul, being all things to all people, doing everything it can to spread the good news. And in all of these areas, the life of the church has seen changes. And in each change, a case can be made that at the heart of the matter, it was about taking the gospel message further and further into the culture that's around us. The Big C Church needs to remind the flock, even in the best of times, that we should be careful not to judge or look down on those who find new ways to redeem parts of the culture for the message of the cross. For far too long, these topics have been things that have caused division and splintering in the church in America, and it reflects the bride of Christ poorly to the non-believer and the next generation. And most importantly, it pains the heart of the Lord to see his bride divided in pain. As the life of the church changes with the culture from generation to generation, these issues over how to dress for church and how and when to use technology, which songs to play and, and what style and whether or not a church sanctuary can be in a warehouse or a strip mall or what lighting should be used on the stage have been elevated to a place in line with how to view the Bible and interpret scripture and the practice of baptism and the importance of communion. And as shepherds, it's our responsibility to lift up and honor the rich history and the traditions of the church from each generation. But it's also our responsibility to ensure that our traditions never become an idol, law, or religion. These practices that we've witnessed expressed over the life of the church are great, but at the end of the day, they're really just modes and mediums. When we try to enforce those things in the next generation and on our fellow brothers and sisters, they become self-imposed religion. 
And Pastor David Guzik said, self-imposed religion is man reaching to God, trying to justify himself by keeping a list of rules, where Christianity is God reaching down to man in love through Christ. If we get too wrapped up in these little things and we miss the bigger picture of the call to be a disciple and share the good news, then we fail to represent the body of Christ to each other and to our community. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 24, Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. The fact of the matter is that at the end of the day, the Lord cares about our hearts more than anything else. To think that God cares one bit what you wear, what instrument you're using to praise his name, or whether or not you're watching church in person, at church from a pew, or at home online with your family is a violation of the new covenant that he made with his people. We have access to God at all times and in all circumstances. Christ has given us freedom, but what's the posture of our hearts within these freedoms in all of these various situations? Are we using the freedom Christ afforded us for his glory or for our own benefit? When we accepted Christ, we laid down our old lives and our old desires and we picked up the life of Christ. The early Christians knew that they were a new creation, a new humanity, freed from the old bondages and the legalism that existed. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.15 says, He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Colossians 3.11 says, In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. David Guzik says, The new creation is part of the family which favors no race, nationality, class, culture, or ethnicity. It only favors Jesus because in this new family, Christ is all and in all. This verse also points out that in our new creation, when we put on the life of Christ, It breaks down the barriers that separate people in society. It doesn't matter what your preferences are for music or for attire or for church campus. It doesn't even matter what tribe you belong to. You're an image bearer of God and the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks all barriers down. And it's in Christ and in his love for us that our hearts are affected and we find unity with each other. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have no faith in any reformation that does not come through men's hearts being changed. And this gets to the heart of the matter. The life of the church has taken many different shapes. And by God's grace and power, it will continue to not only take on different shapes, but take on new ground. However, reformation for the better doesn't just come from man's ability to be creative or man's freedom to make changes. It starts with man's heart being changed by the creator God through his son, Jesus Christ. Now more than ever, we need unity and we need peace in the church. With statues being torn down and the calls to take aim at the statues of Jesus even, we don't need division and splintering over non-issues. Let's remind ourselves of how Jesus dealt with these types of things. One day, the scribes and the Pharisees accused the Lord and his disciples of being irreverent for not following the traditions of the elders. And in Mark 7, 1 through 13, it says, One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the religion of religion law asked him, Why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. And Jesus replied, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, These people honor me with their lips. 
but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. But you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents, and so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. You see, Jesus took issue with holding traditional standards higher than the law of God and trying to enforce the preferences of one group on another. It's not our place to pass judgment on our brothers and sisters over these traditions and these non-issues. Like Shane mentioned a few weeks ago, we are called to be watchmen, to judge our fellow brothers and sisters, spurring each other on. It's church discipline. It's about equipping each other. And this is for the good of the individual and the church as a whole. But this is not to be done on disputable matters. The topics of technology, music, attire, and decor are all disputable matters. Ones that have taken on different shapes over time in beautiful ways and been effective tools for the ministry of the church, but they're disputable matters nonetheless. At the end of the day, we have to examine our hearts because that's what the Lord is really looking at. Is our heart desiring for our fellow brother and sister to worship God? Or is our heart focused on enforcing our traditions on our fellow brother and sister from one age to the next? Is our heart worried more about the method than the message? The life of the church has changed over the course of history, but God's truth has not. Carl Vaders is the teaching pastor at Cornerstone Christian uh, Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. And he recently wrote a blog about his struggle that he's having with himself personally and what he's seeing happening in the church. And as an older pastor himself, he asked this question, when did the members of my generation begin to care so much about the things that matter so little? He spent some time talking to his congregation, to the elders, to the elder statesmen and his fellow pastors, and this is what he found. Some of the biggest problems in the church today from their vantage point was skinny jeans, flip-flops, coffee cups in the sanctuary, wood pallets on the stage, stage lighting, spiky or swooped back hair, scruffy beards, smartphones, short pants, and untucked shirts. Now, I think that's a pretty fair list. I personally don't like wood pallets on stage or short pants. Now, it's just my own personal preference shining through a little bit there, but they're my preference nonetheless. Now, Pastor Carl went on to say, it's hard to imagine anything that would concern Jesus less than how we dress for church or the technology and the instruments that we use while we're there. And I think all of us would agree with this pastor's sentiment. Where was the lack of biblical literacy on that list, though? Where was the sanctity of Christ-centered marriages? Where was discipleship and the fact that the church is declining in conversions and baptisms? Later on in his blog, he said something that really hit me. He said, people are offering their Sunday best when they show up with enthusiasm, worship with gusto, give to the needy, and share what they learn with their friends. What matters most is our hearts paired with our actions, demonstrating a true devotion to give the praise and honor to the King of all kings. What should matter is our desire to share this passion with others and our love for Christ to fuel our love for others, especially to help those in need. Paul in the book of Colossians reminds the Christians in Colossae that Jesus is superior to all things, and it's Jesus that we should be concerned with most. Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 2, set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. And in Colossians 3 15, 
And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. As I think about TCC, I think we've done a beautiful job of this. But it's always good to remind ourselves of these truths. We need to set up safeguards in ourselves that sound an alarm in our hearts and our minds when peace has been lost with our brothers and sisters in the church. And when that happens, we need to ask ourselves, is this thing that's causing my peace to fade coming from my eyes being focused on something above? Or is it coming from something focusing my eyes on some earthly thing? I hope, my hope, is that after today we would look back at the way that the life of the church has changed over time and see that even when we didn't necessarily agree with the way it looked or the way it sounded, God was faithfully leading his bride. God was sustaining the church and he was being honored because his people were dedicated to following him, following his mission to find ways to proclaim the good news, to find ways to shine the light of the gospel in the dark places, to reach the next generation of the families in the church who are coming up so that our grandkids and our great-grandkids would have a heart and a desire to serve Jesus and his church for generations to come. Although the life of the church may have looked different, the truth remains that living a life of Christ is an inside-out life. It starts with the heart, and from the heart, it directs and influences every aspect of our life. It's what allows us the freedom and the abilities to redeem aspects from culture and use them to honor and glorify Jesus with. Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. So today, let's celebrate together our rich and diverse history as the Bride of Christ here at TCC. Let's be thankful for those who came before us. I'm so thankful for Pastor Ed Fixie, who who was bold enough to feel the Spirit's tug on his heart to redeem the drive-in culture, tear down an old chicken coop, and convert it to a stage to be used right here on campus. It's what birthed the ideas that we had to do church as a community twice in the season of COVID, and that was a blessing in both of those services. Let's bless those that were willing to try new things so that some may come to know Christ. Let's anticipate that the life of the church may look different in the future, but that it will always proclaim the truth for all to hear, and that it's a place in this community, in this nation, in this world, and that it would never be diminished or fade away. And let us not fall into the snares of the evil one who would attempt to use traditions and preferences to divide and splinter the bride of Christ. Jesus made a way for you and me. He invited us to the table. He offered up himself as the bread of life, and he shed his blood for us as an offering to pay for our sins. As we come to the table this morning, let's keep our eyes on the main things. Let's examine our hearts and let's cherish the beautiful diversity of his bride. To close, listen to these words from 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.